1: Shot by the forest captain to give Brian Club's team the lead in the cup final and what Gascoigne ended in the semi-final against Arsenal Pierce produces against Tottenham in the final.
0: Hello, I'm Mark Pugach, and Ramble meets this week is with Stuart Pearce, a man with a great history at international level with England, with Nottingham Forest, association with Brian Clough. He played for Newcastle. He played for West Ham. He's coached the England under-21 side as well. And now he's back at West Ham for a second time as first-team coach, along with David Moyes. So lots to talk to Stuart about. Thank you for your time. Great to see you. I hope you've been... Well, in these rather odd days in which we all live, certainly odd days, but been very well, thank you. Yeah, all good. Excellent, Stuart. Uh, there's so much to talk to you about, and I've got your book as well, which uh, which has come out. Never stop dreaming, my Euro '96 story. So we will we will weave that in as we look ahead to Euro '2020, as it's still going to be called, even though it's going to be in '2021. Did you grow up in a, a football household? Were your was your mum and dad and you, I know you had an older brother, fifteen years older than you. Were they big football fans? Uh,
1: my eldest brother was. He was a, a linesman, actually a football league linesman. In, in fact, this is a, a little known fact for you here. He he was linesman on a game in the League Cup we played at Forest at Brighton. Incredibly. Really? Yeah, yeah. Say so he was running the line before I turned pro. So um, obviously the the family connection shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, I'm about the to game. say you shouldn't have been allowed. He but shouldn't have been allowed to do that. he was Just given a game at Brighton, second leg of a League Cup, and and our Forest team went down there and played the game. And uh, did he, you say uh, anything? I I abused him on the odd occasion <laughs> as I run past him as you do to your elder brother. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, and he used to box as well. So from a sporting uh, perspective, you know, he had the footballing connection and whatever. Um, my father. Played football, but just locally, but very, very positive, my father, in regard to sort of taking me to games and watching matches as a kid, as a, you know, county level and district level, that type of thing, and school football.
0: Uh, hang on, but just before we finish with your brother and Brighton, did you tell Brian Clough that's my brother running the line?
1: Yeah, and yeah, oh, what did so. Cluffy say? He, he didn't really, you know, he didn't know. Is he a better footballer than you, son? <laughs> you know, that type of thing, you know, what you like as a linesman. I think he wanted a swap or something of that nature, you know. Your your parents obviously were a really strong influence
0: on you. And, uh, and in your book, I, I would really notice this, your book, Never Stop Dreaming, my Euro 96 story, that your father... Once he'd paid off the mortgage, changed jobs, mm. and it, I'm reading between the lines, in as much as so that he could watch you as much as possible while you
1: were playing football while you were growing up. Yeah, very much. He used to work as a head waiter in Claridge's in London and some of the top uh, hotels and restaurants in London. And uh, we moved over to Northwest London. He bought a house there and got a mortgage out on the house, you know, moved from Shepherd's Bush when I was five. And basically, every spare penny he had he paid the mortgage off on a weekly basis and he said the last day that the last payment was due, he walked in, paid the last payment off and handed his notice in, become a postman in Wembley, uh, which gave him a bit of flexibility to come and watch me play in my school career and whatever. We had very good school teams that I played in and... Uh, Sunday teams and district teams, that type of thing, and was fantastically supportive. My mum and dad you know, took me to games and stuff like that and then into the non-league system. So it, I think you need that behind you. You really do. There's so many probably young players that I see that maybe are lost to sport and top-level sport because they've not got the support of parents behind them. Some of them may be lost a bit, Stuart, because there's
0: too much pressure on them because for mm. some parents, quite understandably, they're thinking... You know, we 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 could have a little pot of gold out here on the pitch as well. Sometimes it can go too far the other way. You might have seen that as well in your career.
1: Yeah, I certainly have. I mean, you know, and I know, Mark. Probably when I was was coming through the system as a as a young footballer, maybe forty odd years ago. Now that it, it was for the love of the game. You know, the finance didn't really come into it. You know, and uh, it was the love of playing football and going out and playing football over the park with your friends, that type of thing, that evokes you and starts you off and. There is a lot of pressure on people. There, there's it's a cash cow scenario um, with some young players, and really, what we have to do now, and I'm in the coaching game, is, is take that pressure away from young players and let them flourish. You know, and say, look, you'll reach whatever level you're going to reach. So take the pressure off yourself, you know, but just give everything to to a profession you love, really.
0: Was your dad the sort of that when you were playing age 15, 16, you just look at the touchline, just a little nod, a little
1: wink? I mean, no more than that. Not a, not a vocal dad on the touchline? No, very quiet. As I say, you know, um, never really said anything in regard, certainly side of the pitch would never make a comment, basically, you know. But exactly as you said, really, you know, it's it's a little comment, it's a nod, it's a wink, that type of thing that, you know, you know. Keep a clean sheet now, son. That type of, of comment, really.
0: Just enough to be there. That's that's all that matters, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. When you're when when you're growing up, and and we know as fathers now, just enough to be there. Mm. People would have noticed that you said growing up in Wembley. Mm. So here's here's a great passionate Englishman who's captained his country and played, obviously in Euro '96, which we'll get to. Who grew up in Wembley and mm. went to Wembley Stadium. A lot for a variety
1: of reasons as a young man. I did. As I say, um, you know, I worked for Brent Council and Wembley's in Brent Council eventually when when I left school. Um, and my connection with the borough, you know, is quite intense. I, I was schooled in the borough, you know. So, um, yeah, it was a strange one. I've worked at Wembley Stadium as a 14, 15-year-old boy in one of the porters in the bars. I was at the England Games working, you know, uh, in the 70s. I... Went to ground racing on a Friday night when all my friends were down the pub, but I was a non-league player, so I needed to do something that wasn't sort of Mm pub-related, if you like because um, you had a game the next day exactly yeah. that yeah. you know watched evil kenevil jump over 13 buses at wembley
0: now th- that we yeah. is we're gonna have to explain to people because you and i are the same age who yeah, evil yeah. Knievel is but he
1: was quite a character when you and i were growing up he was he was uh he was a stump motorbike rider that used to do stunts and one of the biggest stunts he'd done he had a dead darede- it was classed as a daredevil show at wembley one summer and uh they had a multitude of things going on with you know people setting themselves alight and jumping into sort of a foot of water from about thirty four. It was a multitude of things going on. It was a brilliant day. One of my brothers, not the linesman, and my other brother took me because uh, he loved motorbikes so and the the sort of the highlight of the day was evil Knievel went up a ramp right at one end of the stadium and he come down the ramp and he was trying to jump 13 double-decker buses and you you know all about that he ended up crashing breaking ribs breaking this breaking that and done a, a walk around the stadium after doing that it was just an incredible day it really was and it was the sort of thing that when
0: we were growing up and we fell off our bike which we all did mm. the first thing your mum would say to you was who do you think you are Evil Knievel because yeah. you'd come home yeah. bleeding and mum bash my knee it was I mean he was sort of you know part of the, the common land you were a ball boy as well what in an FA Vars final which yeah, is
1: one of the yeah. non-league finals I think it was uh, Sheffield Plymouth uh, my Sunday team uh, because I was in the borough got picked and as a ball boy at the game and uh, it was in- quite surreal really because we were ball boys and then after the game we went up to the Grand Banqueting Hall at Wembley as it was in those days and had a lot of dignitaries sat round and, and having a meal that type of thing after the game and I... I looked at an autograph book that I got from the day that I got some autographs. I had no idea who was in it and I moved house probably about 10 years ago and I got this autograph book out and I looked and on facing pages to each other. Bear in mind, this was about 1974, 75. I had Margaret Thatcher on one page and Brian Clough on the other. They must have been sat next to each other or... Very close to each other. A very was, different you know? politics. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> would have been interesting have dinner been chat, interesting. really. But it was just to look back at that and thought, wow well, we that's quite incredible yeah. considering the path I went on, you know. Did this
0: fire you, you know, that you were at Wembley, the home of football which obviously you knew, did this fire your ambition? You're you're pulling pints when England are playing Scotland or mm. Czechoslovakia in those days or whatever it was, you're thinking, I really want to be back here as a player.
1: You know, at the time, I probably didn't. And especially when you see my sort of journey as a footballer, I was, you know, a 13-year-old that my grandfather wrote to Queen's Park Rangers, the team I supported, and the one I was born and and around the ground and whatever. Um, And I I had six months there as as a young kid, as a 13-year-old, then got released. And I had no real perception about being a professional footballer. And certainly when I left uh, school at the age of 16 and you think what am I going to do now sort of thing. I wanted to join the police, wanted to join the army, failed both interviews. So I had nothing to do, but my local non-league club was a real salvation to me, Mark. You know, I had nowhere to go and play football from a very successful school team. Um, and Sunday team was pretty successful as well to ended up just going and playing to my local non-league team. Five of us from our school team went down to Wealdstone and, when you start in Wildstone, you go out and work for a living. And my first job was, was lifting boxes in a warehouse in Stonebridge, a radio and TV warehouse. Um, you don't think, well, maybe tomorrow I might be a professional footballer. It just did not cross my mind. And then subsequently I ended up being an electrician, got got on the uh, local council with my, my brother, who's a linesman, was <laughs> electrician as well. So I joined him and done an apprenticeship. But you, you never really sort of went to work and played for Wildstone and And thought to yourself, well, one day I'll be a professional. My life was an electrician or working in a warehouse. That was my life. And football was a bit of fun. Something I got paid, I think my first contract was £15 a week. So that was fantastic in itself.
0: Because today, the, the the non-league level at which you were playing then is, is quite a lot of them are pros, aren't they? Mm. Sorry, quite a lot of them are full-time. Yeah, they yeah. are pros. They're full-time. But that balance in your day was very different then. It Messy. was very, very much, this is part-time. This is a bit of, not fun, but this is yeah. the t- Saturday afternoon stuff.
1: Well, I think it's reverse now. I think what we had, today we've got a tier system that people are progressing to get into the league. Mm. I was the only player at Willstone in the first team, when I got in the first team, that had no connection with a pro club. A lot of them were were pros that didn't make the level at the age of 21, 22. We had a couple come from Luton that didn't make it, Northampton, Fulham, you name it. I was the only one who had no connection after the age of 16 with any pro club. So it was almost... a. You're coming down from the game. You've had a, a go at it, and you've not made that level. Rather than now, I look at the non-league setup, and it's you know the national leagues geared up to get into the league and get promoted. There was no—I don't think there was any promotion in those days as well. So it was, it was
0: all—it re- was all election, wasn't it? Was, it? The, the team it had, who came bottom of the ninety-two sought yeah. re-election, which most of the time they got.
1: They did. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Which which was quite sad at the time. So there were some really good sides and I was playing against players that were ex-plos. I ex uh I remember lining up against Altrincham and Alex Stepney's in goal, yeah. you know, and people of that. Well, Jimmy Greaves
0: ended that. up in non-league football, yeah.
1: didn't he? So, but it was a great grounding for me. I mean, I had two hundred, best part of 250 games non-league before I turned pro. And, you know, it toughens you up make no mistake about that, but some real, even the wingers you play against, you know, they they give as good as you get in and you had to, you had to be, you had to look after yourself mm. and a lot of the senior pros were great schoolmasters in those days, as, you know, it's a terminology mm. that the horse people use, a schoolmaster, you know, that almost all guide you through it if you like and I think that's lost a little bit in the modern day game, you know, the senior pros really help the youngsters around them. There's one or two that do, but not, the help I had from senior players and captains at clubs has been fantastic over the years.
0: Just one more, because you mentioned Queens Park Rangers, and again, bearing in mind the uh, the era. They very, very nearly won the league. Arguably, mm. they should have won the league in the mid-70s with Jerry mm. Francis' team. I mean, I know, again, for our younger listeners, they'll be like, Queen's Park Rangers going to win the league. But, I mean, literally, they were a game away from doing so, weren't they, in the mid-70s?
1: They certainly were. And we had the England captain in Jerry Francis yeah. and the, the various internationals, Ian Gillard, I think, got capped for England, Phil Parks, people of that ilk. They had a brilliant team and were great to watch. A really exciting side to watch. Um, and I was fortunate enough, my dad used to take me down a lot before I, probably at the age of 13, I started going on my own, you know. So um, fantastic to watch. And you're looking at people that inspire. I mean, David Webb was, was mm-hmm. a player who used to play for Rangers that, that sort of was my sort of footballing hero, you know, it, it, of that era. Same David Webb who'd played for
0: Chelsea. That's the, the one. The, with the shoulder, score the winning
1: goal That's in the it. cup final with his shoulder. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, he was—I don't know—it was just something about him. Used to get goals from set plays, yeah. like he did for Chelsea in the cup final. Yeah, yeah that um, was from a throw-in, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, pretty tough as well in in the way he played. Played cent- central defense, and I only ever played cent- center back uh, in all my schooling time. I never played left back until I left school, and then I was deemed too small to play at center back in the non-league setup. So, so when you get to to
0: Nottingham Forest. Um, you're still an electrician. Is it is it true that Brian Clough said, please mend my toaster?
1: Well, it is, but I'll come back to that <laughs> <Okay>. shortly if <laughs> I might. Uh, I, I ended up, my first port of call was Coventry City. Yep. And when I went there, I, I had to take a £30 wage cut for the privilege of playing in the top division in the country from electrician and non-league footballer. So I set up my own business. I traded on my own. I used to work in the afternoon. So after eighteen months of that, I ended up, you know, walking in Brian Clough's office and still wanted to trade as an electrician. So I said to him, you know, I'm an electrician by trade. Do you mind if I advertise in the programme and carry on trading? Uh, and he said, not a problem at all. He said, um, it was his kettle actually. He said, my <laughs> kettle's broken. If you mend that, I'll let you advertise in the programme. Seems good enough deal. So. <laughs> That was it. He bought his kettle in the following day. I took it home. The element had gone. I took it back into him. I said to him, you know, look, your, ele- your element's gone. It's going to cost you more to replace the element than just buy a new kettle. And you look like the sort of bloke who's got a few quid. I may have been wrong at the time. And, uh, yeah, he just he turned around and called me a charlatan, told me to get out, <laughs> that type of thing, as he as you would yeah, expect. Yeah. Um, but that was that. And for the next two years, I advertised in the programme. And I had a and got work client. from it, obviously. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, remember one, I think it might have been the Brighton game, the first leg of, of the game we talked about yeah. earlier. I had a phone call the morning after the game and someone come on the line and said, hello, and, is that Stuart Pearce? I said, uh, uh, yes. Uh Stuart Pearce? I said, well, I don't know how many of us <laughs> are there out there, but I'm one of them. He said, I was at the game last night. Are you the one, are you advertising? I said, that's right. And he said, you play for Forest. Wow, that's incredible. He said, I'm an electrician. I said, well, you ain't bringing up the work. (laughs) (laughs) If you get off the line, I'm waiting for some work here. And he was just astounded, you know what I mean? Uh, But I've got to say, when I first turned pro, there was a lot of people, I wouldn't say a lot, but there was people making ends meet in some ways. You know, I know uh, when I was at Coventry, I think it was Nicky Plattner and uh, Mickey Adams, they bought themselves a flatbed lorry and were doing garden clearances. You know, for, for top division players to be doing that is quite incredible. It shows how the game's changed. Um, it's just worth repeating that. For top division players,
0: mm. today's equivalent to the Premier League. Yeah. Garden clearances and new, new advertising in the programme. Well, of course, no one fixes anything anymore, do they, Stuart? Well, they, the repair shop is very popular on BBC One. Well, but we're a bit more
1: the throwaway culture, aren't we, these days? Sadly, we are. Yeah. But I think that'll turn. Evolution will turn it mm. back, you know. We say the repair shop is so popular now.
0: Um. It really interesting reading in your book, um, Never Stop Dreaming, about Brian Clough, where you said he wasn't... I mean, there seems to be such a big difference between the way he went about it and today's Coaches, and maybe I've deliberately used that word because you said he wasn't really a coach. He just said she wants. Mm. If you don't stop sliding on your ass, I'll send you back to non-league. Mm. In other words, you know you're not quite in the right position yeah. to start with to deal with the man that yeah. you want to be tackling.
1: When I say he wasn't a coach, he didn't spend hours on the training pitch no. coaching his team into shape, that type yeah. of thing. But one word or one sentence from him, he, every player, and I'm going to say every player, you hung on his every word. I did. You know, he used to say things to you at half time give away statements like that or you know in the dressing room there used to be a ball on a towel in the middle of the dressing room and ten minutes before kick off we had to sit around total silence the only words he said was that's what we play with, go and get it simple as that you know what I mean and, but you hung on his every word and the worst thing, the worst berating he could ever give you probably was after a game not saying anything and you went home and you stewed on it the whole weekend about how you've played that type of thing. But he kept it really simple. If you ask any of the ex-players who played for Forest, kept it really simple. But he knew the game inside out. You didn't become as good as him. He was a great psychologist as well, Mark. You know, he, he wasn't. That we've got psychologists in the game now that have got a name above their yeah. door that says psychologist. Cluffy and Shankly and people like that—they were great psychologists. I've seen him walk away from confrontation as much as I've seen him creating. You know, so he was really clever in some of the battles he's picked and some of the some of the things he done. But I class myself was so fortunate that that I worked for someone of his ilk. You know, I, I was fortunate enough for eight years I worked for him, and you don't realize probably at the time how lucky you are to work for someone of of his character. His CV, I mean, he, you know, it, every day was different. I've got to tell you, you know, he kept it so simple. I mean, we we would we used to train next to Notts County, and there used to be they were in in uh, in one sports field this side, and there was a fence and, and a gate, and we were the other, and it was quite common that he would say we'd go down the training ground, start training, he'd see them training, he'd come on, we'll play them. Just opened the gate, walked in, stopped their training session stone dead (laughs) and said, we'll give you a game. Didn't even ask their manager, no. No. So that was it. We used to play them. Thank you very much. We'll have 20 minutes against them. Come in, go and get home. See you Friday. Be ready for the game. Kept it so simple. It was incredible. But his eye for a signing as well and how he turned very, very average players. And I, I class myself as one of those into international players was quite incredible. So what do you think he saw in you to go and get you from Coventry? Um, I was I was playing for Coventry in, I think it was the March. My contract was finishing that summer. There was no freedom my contract in those days, but my contract was finishing. And I, as a Coventry player, was playing at Nottingham Forest and I went in for a challenge and I needed the physio to come on and treat me. So as I looked up, The physio was there treating my leg. It was the Nottingham Florist physio, not the Coventry one. And the first thing he said to me was not, you know, where is it? Where's the problem? How old are you? Cluffy had sent him on to ask how old I am because he obviously probably didn't know me as such, you know, because I was only just over a year in the game, in the pro game. And... So he's actually t- he's basically tapping you up mid game. Basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and eventually, a couple of months later, we we were coming to the end of the season. Uh, Coventry were playing Liverpool at Highfield Road. I was walking up the ground to to go to the game, probably an hour and a quarter before the kick off, and a, a gentleman came up to me and said, "Hi, my name's Alan Hill. I, I work for Nottingham Forest. Um, would you be interested in coming to join us?" So I said. Yeah, all right. He said, well, give us your number. So I've given this total stranger my home number because there were no mobile phones in those days. Um, a couple of days later, my phone rang, picked the phone up. It was Alan Hill again. He said, I've got Brian here. He wants to talk to you. Come on the phone. Do you want to play for me, son? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to. And the phone, just slammed the phone down. That was it. And then he agreed a fee. Two of us went and joined him at Forest and you know I sort of never look back really I joined him not Nottingham Forest if I'm being honest with you in those days my love for the club grew once I got there but when Brian Clough turns around and says listen I want you to join me it just woos you really
0: Has he had a lasting impact on your life away from football as well in other words what you
1: learned from him have been life lessons in a way? I, I think Bear in mind, I worked for him from the age of 23 to 31. So, real... In growing as a man, if you like, from a boy to a man, I would say yes, without a doubt. I think most of the England caps I ever won were in his care. How he expected you to conduct yourself as a footballer and a person off the pitch was really important. And I think a lot of the life skills that, that he probably taught me, you know what I mean? Um, don't get above your station. He was big with that. He never let any of his players think that they've arrived. He always kept you on your toes. If he if he wasn't at the training ground for any reason, which was very rare, I always felt as though he was looking for another left back. Never felt as though, in all honesty, he liked me, but I was functional for him, you know what I mean? As a player, as a captain, and just one... One raised thumb during a game made you feel. I can't. It's very difficult to put into words how it made you feel as a player. You ask John Robertson, say the same, me and Boya, people of that ilk. If he just give you an accolade of a, a raised thumb for something in you've his green sweatshirt, exactly. It it just raised you so much. It was incredible. I mean, even things like, you know, we went to see. It, there was a time in the in the eighties where. The managers and the captains had to come in and see the, the referee before the game, an hour before kickoff. And he said to the opposition captain, "Keep your mouth shut, son, or my captain will sort you out." And I th- felt so proud that something as ridiculous as that. I felt so proud that he sort of entrusted me to to deliver his words on a football pitch type thing. You know, it was incredible. So in a way, was the cluffy
0: thumbs up a bit like your dad's little nod on the touchline? Just little, small, little uh, moments from two people you respected so much, just to make you puff your chest
1: out. Yeah, without a doubt. And and people that sometimes it's not a lot of words that actually deliver those things. It's a look, it's a nod, it's an affirmative, it's a well done. It it it's all of those things. I I enjoyed, you know. Listen, I I can take a berating from a coach if it, if I feel as though it's going to make me a better player. I also like the adulation as well of a coach sitting me down or taking a time and interest in me. And I've took that with me now in what I do. I try to do that with the players that I'm with. And, you know, if I sit down, I'm talking through their clips as a player. I know that it's really important that if you're delivering messages to improve them, sometimes that could be critical. And it's important to get the balance right between the messages you deliver, you know, to keep the confidence intact and build them as people. Well, playing for Brian Clough did get you into the England team, even if you
0: you thought he didn't always necessarily rate you. Mm. And he even said that, didn't he, when you joined up with England the first
1: time, Mm. didn't he? Yeah. He sort of said, I'm not sure you're good enough to play for England. Yeah, he called me in. Uh, (laughs) Totally out of the blue. It's the greatest moment of my life, I've got to say, being picked for England. You know, bear in mind, a couple of years earlier, uh, I was an electrician and probably less time than that. I was still trading as an electrician. It was probably only turning international. It was probably stopped me working as an electrician. And one of the kids come down the dressing room and said, the manager wants to see you. Walked in and just sat me down and said, I see you're in the England squad. I said, yeah, that's right. Do you think you're good enough? I said, I don't know. He said, I don't. Do one, and I took the swear word out, you know. And it was incredible, really. You know, I, you, you sort of, I stood up, I took his advice, and thanked him for his <laughs> kind words. And but for me, it was it was incredible. He, I think he's delivered two messages on on the day for, from his point of view: keep your feet on the floor, and we pay your wages. Concentrate on Nottingham Forest. They're, they're the two messages he's put across to me. It's, I was nervous as a kitten going to represent England. You know, it's Shilton, it's Wilkins, it's Robson, it's people like that that I look up to. Um, And by the time I sort of got up and walked to the door, the nerves of playing for England had almost diminished. He'd done me a real big favour. It's almost, I'll show you mentality from myself. And he probably didn't realise he'd imparted me with that sort of, I'll show you attitude. But he did. It was brilliant. He got what he got out of it and I certainly got what I got out of it but I just think what other manager would, would call you in berate you for being picked for England <laughs> for the first time and I was his club captain as well <laughs> by the way throw that in the mix <laughs> why don't you but you're not good enough Pierce. whatever yeah. you think it's not necessarily and you say in the
0: prologue to your book individual medals didn't matter so much you won plenty at Forest playing for England was the pinnacle of my career and every cap carried the same weight for me
1: mm. that would be That would be the case. Um, Some people view, I I talk with players now that play for their countries and whatever and I've managed young players with the under-21s as well and people come up to me in the street and they say, when I was managing the under-21s, I wish they all had your your heart and desire to play for your country. You know what I mean? Other players, if you like. I said a lot do, make no mistake, but Before you even get an England call-up, it's got to mean a lot to you. You know what I mean? It did to me and it always has done. You know, Playing for England is bigger than winning an individual medal for your club. I've seen greater highs in England in regard to the national team doing well than ever I have Liverpool winning the league, Man United winning the league. You've only got to look at Euro 96, the euphoria there. Yeah, I'm talking about a quarter of a million people at Luton Airport welcoming back a team that had been knocked out in the semi-finals of 1990 at the World Cup, and I'm thinking you can't replicate that at club level. And it, it, I am just one of those people that representing my country is always stood out way beyond anything I've done at club level. And make no mistake, I've. I've been very proud to represent all the the five pro clubs that I, I've been associated with, and I think I've give good value when I've been at those clubs. But playing for England's, and I think all international players, and I've had to talk young kids into game and representing their country, you know that. And whenever I've come back in from being a player that's been so passionate about that, to be a manager that's always said to my players, no matter what country, not, not just England here we're talking about. I'm talking about any players that have had the opportunity to represent their country, I would never, ever talk them out of it. In fact, I've been proactive in them going to represent their country because I know what it means to me. Mm-hmm.
0: And obviously, what therefore, being on a high, they can bring back to the club as well, can't they, when when it's
1: going well? Well, 100%. Yeah. And uh, you've only got a If I throw a point in case here, Jordan Henderson got his move to Liverpool. Fantastic move and a deserved move at the time. And it wasn't easy for him to settle in at Liverpool. And his salvation, in my opinion was coming with the under-21s, where he's a captain of our team. He was held in high esteem by us as a staff member. And that helped Liverpool and helped him to settle in at Liverpool. And you've only got to see what he's gone on. He's lifted the European Cup. He's lifted the Premier League. for the. He's captained the team. And all of a sudden, people start over the last three, four years maybe, start thinking, you know what? This boy Jordan Henderson maybe ain't a bad player. I said, listen... We saw that in, in twenty eleven, whenever it was, you know, where his unselfish attitude towards the group was just one example of, of how international football was probably and he helped international football, make no mistake, how how that helped He's club career. Well, if you think back of what's happened to England since
0: 1990, there have been three major events and you played in two of them. So obviously we had the 2018 World Cup in in uh, Russia, which I was privileged enough to be at for for work, but obviously Italia 90 and Euro 96. And in Italia 90 and I've worked a lot with Terry Butcher and with Chris Waddle, and talked to a lot about them. And I know you'll you'll corroborate this. It was pretty hairy to start with because mm. us in the media were after you, weren't we? Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. And this was before we have to say this is this
1: is before football was trendy as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, football started getting trendy after the 1990 yep. World Cup. For me, yep. it was the pre-runner for the Premier League you know albeit a couple of years earlier but it's when people that didn't really follow musicians people like that didn't really follow football all of a sudden it become a little bit trendy as you say um, because of probably the euphoria Gascoin played a big part of that and everything that went with it football was elevated and probably pre-1990 I could go to other towns I see a lot of live music so and go unrecognised. After 1990, the ante changed slightly in regard to that. But you're right, it, it changed big time. Um, and and for the good, the grounds started to, to be improved and get a lot better in regard to, you know, Hillsborough, that mm-hmm. type of thing. So, you know, I was really fortunate that that I was part of two massive tournaments that certainly... 1990, I think, changed the mentality of a lot of football fans and football fans that weren't football fans. And 96 showed to the world that we could deliver a major tournament on our soil that wouldn't be littered with, with violence, with, you know, with, with all the bad things that sometimes can be associated with football.
0: How did you find Bobby
1: Robson compared with Brian Clough? um probably chalk and cheese but the love of the game that both had was there there's no doubt about that um bobby was almost like a, a father figure senior statesman with a nice man but he had an edge that that football managers have mm-hmm. to have to to have longevity in the game and i'm glad he did i mean my first game i was picked to play kenny sanson was injured and we were playing Brazil at Wembley. Brazil at home, Scotland away. First two games. So if you're going to start, start with those two. Uh, hundred thousand at Wembley, and um, we were one nil down. I think winger cut inside. Uh, Brazilian winger called Muller cut inside, dipped inside me. Movement I'd never seen before in the league. Ball played in behind. He crossed it, and I think Mirandina, who was at Newcastle. Oh, Newcastle. Scored. Yeah. Um, we equalised 1-1, one, one. went in at half-time 1-1 one, one. I'm thinking to myself, please, please don't see, I'll, you know, I, I know I've made a major mistake here, you know, I've cost us a goal. He's given a team talk, Bobby, you know, and right at the end of it, I thought, got away with that one. He come over to me and went, uh, he done you, didn't he? Then he half took a step away and then he turned around and went, he done you, didn't he? And I'm nodding at this stage. And he went away for the third time and I thought, he's looked back and went, he done you? Don't let it happen again. And I thought, my God, it's almost you've been given one chance to make a mistake at international level. You've made yours, you know. And to be fair, it was great coaching. You know, we talk about Brian Clough, just words. Those words stick with me today like they did in 1987 when I made my debut. It was it was just incredible, great management, and I'm looking up to somebody who's like a father figure, headmaster, father Christmas, all rolled into one, you know, and I think the respect that the squad had for him was manifested itself, certainly those years leading up to, but probably more so when we actually got to the tournament in 1990 where we knew it was his last tournament, and, you know, listen, a lot of us come away from that absolutely crestfallen for varying reasons. People missed penalties like myself. Some people were packing in Chilton last international get together, but we wanted to deliver a trophy for Bobby Robson because for what he stood for, you know, he was a statesman of the game and his love for it and enthusiasm just incredible. What was it like in
0: the uh, tunnel before the quarter final against Cameroon when they started singing?
1: Well, it's something like we'd never seen before, to be fair. We were playing in Napoli and the the walk round was almost the dressing room, if I can sort of say, was was at one side of the pitch and you walked a long tunnel down at the corner flag round and up behind the goal or from behind the goal round to the side, one or two, but it was a long walk, you know. Um, And we, we drew up alongside the Cameroon side and I think it was a captain at the front started a chant and they all joined in and it was just... Never seen anything like it before. It was incredible. For the whole duration of the walk, they were just singing along and and we thought, well, wow. before the game, we've been told, you've almost got a buy. They've got four players suspended because of ill-discipline in the games they, and you thought, well, this is probably the best quarterfinal we could ever have and it was anything but, to be quite honest, it was a massive physical encounter. You know, Gary Lineker says that the ball was up the other end. He got punched in the face in the game and, they were a tough team and skillful team as well. And we squeezed through it. But the, the walk around, you know, John Barnes talks about it and whatever. It was just incredible. We'd never seen that. It's normally you come out, there's a few sort of people beating their chest, maybe back in England, that type of thing. But nothing like we saw. It was just incredible. It really was.
0: And maybe with better discipline, they might have beaten you. Definitely,
1: yeah. Uh, As I say, if they would have been a a little bit more clinical, if they hadn't have had so many suspensions to their key players, um, we class ourselves as very fortunate to have squeezed through that game in a game that we were outplayed for long periods. But the way
0: that football is... The, the the infamous semi final you you played as well as you mm. could have done didn't you and and mm. if it were boxing and there are three neutral judges you'd have probably won that
1: two to one probably wouldn't you in the judges' verdict yeah I think it would be fair to say the one thing I would say Mark over that semi final in ninety and the semi final in ninety six they were two fantastic games against two nations that there was nothing to choose between them on the day it was well, it ended up being extra time penalties in both. They were they were a great advert for the game, I think. They were played in the right manner. Uh, they were played at high octane. And the, the, it was just a brilliant game, certainly in 1990 and 96, really, to be involved in. And um, it was my first tournament in 1990. I'd never experienced a tournament before because I'd come in the game late. I'd never been involved at the youth international levels to... And I know the importance now because I've taken young players to tournaments to give them that experience, to step into the senior environment, so it it doesn't phase them. I'd had 20 caps by the time I walked out at a major World Cup to face the Republic of Ireland in our first game, and I was as frightened as a kitten. And at halftime, Bobby Robson said to me, I think it was halftime or maybe even after the game, he said, what was up with you today? I said, I think it was just nerves. And he looked back at me and said, I'll give you 20 caps not to be nervous today, son. And you know what I mean? It's just little lines like that that you think, you know, they settle you down as a player and you can play your way in. But what he was, fantastically loyal as well, talking about Bobby, how he backed me. What you get with England is... If you're the new kid on the block, and we've seen it with Jack Grealish at the moment, we want him in, and all the media want him in. He's a great new story, and and he's playing fantastically well, but there's a clamour, and that clamour comes too soon on occasion for certain individuals, and there was a clamour for me to come in and replace Kenny Sampson, and I went through the cycle a little bit, and all of a sudden, once I've got my 20 caps or 30 caps, there's a clamour for Tony DeRigo to come in and replace me. And it's just the way of the world with the media in some ways, but there was a chance, and the media were suggesting the aggressive nature of the way I play would let England down and that type of thing. But the one thing where he had my undying loyalty was the fact of he wouldn't listen to that. He would say he's the best left back we got, and I'm going to back him. And he, he he backed people that he had trust in. You know what I mean? His relationship with with Brian Robson was sensational.
0: Did you um, before before we get to the penalty shootout, as it were? I always ask this question because I'm so intrigued. Before you walk out for the semi final of Italia '90, is there any 30 seconds where you're sitting, maybe in the coach, maybe back in the hotel, maybe in the dressing room? You go, "Blimey, Stuart, you're an electrician. You know, growing mm. up in Northwest London, you didn't even know if you were going to make it. You're shifting pallets mm. at a TV production company, and now here you are playing in the biggest football match mm. your country has seen since 1966." That's a good effort. Do you ever have that moment? Or or all of you as pros, do you just have your pros head on so much you just don't have room for that thought?
1: You know what, Mark? It's, it's probably only now when I sort of recount these stories that I actually think to myself, my goodness me, you know what I mean? That one minute you're electrician, the next minute you get a chance to play for Coventry, next minute, you know, a couple of years later you're playing for England, next minute later you're captain in England and all that that advancement sort of thing it's it's only probably in these interviews that you sort of cast your mind back and you say it's some journey by the way and you i i you know because it's not the journey of a boy wonder sometimes you are the boy wonder you're yeah. always
0: going to play for england most of the time you don't let's be honest you're yeah. always going to play for england and you do yeah. this is a very different
1: story and journey it, it is and and I'm quite proud of that that sort of journey because i think that journey gives me a, a connection with fans fans that look at me and say, you know what, it could have been me. If I'd have been a bit a bit more professional, didn't go to the pubs on a Friday night with my mates, I had talent, that type of thing. And I quite like that because people look at me and think, you know what, he's worked the hard way of getting. And that that mentality and that work ethic has probably never, ever enabled me to look back during the journey and I don't like to do that and for me everything's about tomorrow to be quite honest with you and yesterday takes care of itself mentality and and it's tomorrow and it's what you make of tomorrow when you go into your work environment how can you touch other people around you make their life a little bit easier how can you help others alongside you and I've learned that a little bit as I've got older as well but certainly On the time, if I was to turn around to you and say, as I walked out a tunnel on any given day that I was thinking, well, what a journey I've had, I'd never ever do that because it was only ever about the moment and the next day. That's all that that mattered for me.
0: Well, quite nice then just to be asked to think about that now that it's all over, to go, that's a heck of a journey because, as you say, that's a great example because a very good old saying, is it? If we don't have our dreams, we don't have anything. So, you know, you, you, you have that.
1: Were you unlucky with your penalty no, against West I, I Germany? I chose to drive down the middle, and the goalkeeper saved it. Someone on that day had to miss a penalty for that mm. game to be finished. The one thing is, we know for sure we we can't still be taking penalties from nineteen ninety <laughs> yeah. because it was even Stephen. Yeah, um, I missed, but the the one thing that I found out a lot about myself, I think, in that s- subsequent time, uh, I, I felt as though. I'd rather handle the miss than it be another one of my teammates. I think I've got the the mental skills to handle that. Um, it hurt at the time and it hurt for months afterwards. But the following year, it was my best season as a player. I had something to prove. Like when Cluffy said I wasn't good enough to be. I, there's something in me that says, I'll show you I'm not good enough. You know, and Maybe because I've had to come from non-league and turned down for jobs that I wanted to do when I was a kid and I've had a lot of, I've had knockbacks in my life and knockbacks have only ever been a real, real bonus to me looking back, at the time they hurt Um, but looking back now I think, you know what, missing that penalty at the World Cup whilst it hurt at the time it probably made me stronger, more determined I mean the following year I think I scored 16 goals You said you had your
0: best season didn't you? By far,
1: by far where a lot of the players that come back from the World Cup that done particularly well were were saying, oh, I feel a bit tired and hadn't had their best seasons. I, by far, sort of come back with something to prove. Wherever I went in the country, I got dogs abused by the away fans, as you'd expect. Mm. And it was almost, yeah, brilliant. You keep talking. You know what I mean? Because you're driving me on here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was exactly that. And I think you adversity you find out so much more about yourself than ever you do I'm a little bit I'm almost a little bit it, it doesn't sit right with me when people pat me on the back for things I do, it's just in my psyche, it just it, it, it stinks to me of, of complacency and you know putting your feet up and that's just not me Six really well struck penalty kicks and now Stuart Pearce who's uh, done the job for Nottingham Forest Can he do it for England? He can't! Ildner has made a save! And the score remains 3-3, and the Germans have a kick in hand.
0: You said... You're happy that you took the penalty in 1990 because you wouldn't have wanted one of your teammates to miss. In 96 against Spain, it's the same sort of attitude, is it? Well, actually, in your book, what you say is, if I didn't volunteer to take one, effectively, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself. I would have felt that, I'm putting words in your mouth now, that you were a bit cowardly if you'd not taken one that day against Spain in the quarterfinal.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. You know... My history of taking penalties went back six years earlier for England, obviously, with that penalty miss. And I I knew as soon as we come out of the group stages, we could be in a penalty shootout scenario. So I, I thought it through in my mind and I thought, what do I do? Sit back and let a manager pick his volunteers? Do I volunteer? And I thought, you know what? There is absolutely no way I can stand on the halfway line and let five of my teammates go up that I had deemed not as good penalty takers as myself or, or players that don't take penalties for their club. Ince didn't take penalties for his club. The Gate didn't. Mm. Uh, Tony Adams didn't. Various other players don't take penalties. I'm thinking you're a fraud if you end up... And then you don't realise... but roll the clock forward and and I'm sort of asking young players in my care as an international manager to take chances and and do that if I didn't take a penalty all those years ago how could I ask a young person to stand up it doesn't matter if you fail and talk the talk in respect to that you know I didn't realize that at the time but that conversation probably has served me well over the years you know it's it's not the failure that that, that is the thing is the lack of making an attempt to fail is real failure in my world. I've told you the story
0: before, but it's worth repeating. So I was at a wedding. I was best man and my friend's a massive football fan. So we'd had a bit of a, why are you getting married on quarter final day debate? Anyway, we'd gone through that, did my speech, knew what was going on. went, ladies and gentlemen, it's extra time. We belted for the kitchen and there's about 50 of us in this, probably about not much bigger than the studio we're in now, 50 or 60 of us all squashed in there. And when you pick the ball up, because you were then part of, I'll be honest, English sporting narrative, every man, woman in there knew exactly what the backstory was. Yeah. And you pick the ball up and there's this frisson and my wife turns around and looks at me and, I, and, and all our feeling is, it goes from, are England going to win the shootout or not? Doesn't matter. Just don't miss. Don't miss. Even if England lose the shootout, don't miss because that would be so unfair for you mm. to miss again. And you say, interesting. You've only got one football photograph in your home, mm. which is of you putting the ball on the spot that day.
1: Yeah, because I'm an individual, Mark. I don't really. I don't like the looking back. I mean, make no mistake. I've been to teammates of mine. I've been to Kevin Keegan's house and people, and he's got pictures and memorabilia up, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm transfixed. <laughs> pictures yeah. and stuff like that of, you know, shirts and stuff. And I think it's brilliant in other people's houses. Yeah. In mine, it, it almost stinks of comfort. I, I don't know what it is. If something Back to your me, complacency again, yeah, you were saying. Yeah, complacency. And I fear complacency. So I, I've got one picture and you can't even see my face. All you can see is me, uh, I'm bent over, placing the ball on the spot. So all you see is the top of my head and the word Pierce on the shirt behind and that's the only one I have Give myself the luxury of having just up in the office. And probably the reason I have that up, and people ask me what were my thoughts when I went to take the penalty and all that sort of thing. And I knew I was going to retire after that tournament. That might have been the last kick I ever made for England, potentially. I also as well, two years previous to that, Terry Venables rang me in 94, and said to me, um, Graham is going to be the left-back, you won't be involved, you know, and the phone went quiet and he was waiting for me as a 34-year-old, 33-year-old player to turn around and say, thanks very much, I had a brilliant time for England, thanks for letting me know, I'll pack in and announce my retirement. I didn't do that, I said, okay, if you think I'm good enough, I'll be in the squad though, will I? And I'll turn up, he said, uh, "Um." Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it took him aback, yeah. I think. Because he
0: thought you were going to take the of opportunity. He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And for the best part of a year and a bit, I had to sit outside the team and support Graham. And myself and Graham got on brilliantly, really did. We we were big music fans and we talked music. And he he was a better left back than myself at the time. And he was, you know, bursting forward and good energy and all that. And I used to sort of come in at half time and, and try to help him with his game. And. And it took me a year and a half to sit there and and I think it was in December, Graham broke his ankle playing for Blackburn and I got my opportunity to come back in the side from being a bit part player, sitting in the stands, being a sub, getting the odd game. And that picture of me putting the ball down on the penalty spot tells me a story about that wasn't when things were going well. The, the, The story for me in that picture to get that opportunity is to be selfless for your country, you know? And I even see it with the likes of Beckham who, who played a multitude of games but he's happy to turn up just to get a minute on the pitch for England and win another cap. And I thought, you know what? Quite often it isn't about the 11 that are on the football pitch, you know. It's about the ones that don't get on the pitch and don't get their 15 seconds of fame but are prepared to support the team just to give the the team the opportunity to win something. And, and that picture, that's what that picture says to me. But I know when... I, when I made that walk, Mark, uh, I think there was a hundred thousand people in that stadium and beyond that w- were more nervous than I was. And make no mistake. I... Oh, the
0: freestyle in that kitchen was was a was a microcosm of what was going on in a Wembley, which was a microcosm of the entire English nation and English men and women yeah. round everywhere, wherever they were. Yeah. Oh, they were. Which was for your sake, as I say, nothing to do with England winning the shootout. For your sake, yeah. Please don't miss again. Nobody really wants to see him miss it. And he hasn't. Three out of three for England. Wow, well, he's fired up for that. And the emotion that came out was that just sort of—it was almost like it's almost like somebody had sort of put a pin in you and all that pent-up energy and emotion, even if you didn't necessarily feel that, it was like yeah. subconsciously there
1: just went woof. Yeah, there was just no forethought at all, and there was almost a split second between the ball hitting the back of the net, realization I'd scored realisation that that England had got a better chance of progressing and then just emotion just roared out. It was, you know, not pre-planned by any means, but, you know... And you heard
0: the noise then, because you don't always as a player, I know, but you Mm. heard the noise then, didn't you, in Wembley? Yeah, I
1: mean, (laughs) I've never played sport and football in an environment to replicate Euro 96. It was just incredible. The whole tournament, after that, after that game, myself and David Seaman walked down the tunnel at Wembley. We went up to a, up a flight of stairs or two to a, a media room, TV, and done an interview. And all we could hear was a hundred thousand people singing "Football's Coming Home." It was just unbelievable. The stadium was vibrating to it. It was it was a great time to be an English footballer. We're going to
0: finish with the semi-final. One more question before that, though, because the next night you took the England, now England manager, Gareth Southgate, Mm. to the Sex Pistols. You're a broad church, which I think is great because I've just noted down here things you're interested in away from football in no particular order. The Sex Pistols, punk music, the Marx Brothers, Gilbert and Sullivan, you went to watch Mm. when you were at Newcastle, and Oscar Wilde as well. yeah. I, I and it's quite, great, isn't it? Because sometimes footballers are portrayed as just very, very insular. Yeah. Although Marcus Rashford and Raheem Sterling are, are changing yeah. that, which is great. But yeah. was it important to you, particularly bearing in mind, I guess, where you'd come from in the sense that you'd had a trade beforehand, that
1: you were quite a broad church? Without a doubt. I need I need my time away from football. You know, I love football. And the intensity that I put into football is, is probably wrong at times. You know what I mean? It's like I would come home... After a game. And even if we've arranged to go out that evening, if I hadn't played back, if I hadn't played well, everything gets put on hold. It was an obsession almost, you know. But I, I could see no other way of doing it. That that was the norm for me. Um, and yeah, it was a lovely release. I mean, my, my ex wife kept horses, so we've always had horses, so they were a great release, if you like. Love to travel. You know, absolutely love it to bits. And so I'd, I, my ambition is to see every country of the world. Oh, um, great. That's so, a great ambition. Uh, yeah, Yeah, certainly. And um, love history, military history, love to mm. bits, as I say. And I would go and do things on my own. Like I'd go and see Gilbert and Sullivan at Newcastle. I'm a 36, 37-year-old player at Newcastle. So I'm at the matinee in the afternoon on my own of South Pacific or... Gilbert and Sullivan Opera or you know I don't mind that and I'd go and see concerts now I'd, if I can't get anyone to go with me I'll go and see a punk band even if it's an hour and a half away it's it you know it's the norm for me to do that and I quite enjoy being slightly different if you like you know what I mean you can't shoebox me you can't stereotype me I think they try to do that to Me as a player, and there's a lot of resistance. What with psycho and all that? Yeah, yeah. it's you know, the, it was a bit of theatre, it was brilliant, it was fantastic. But if you think that's all I am, and you're thinking this fella called psycho, all he does is kick people, it, 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 no, there's a little bit more to that, you know, as a means to an end to it. And the same with how I live my life as well, you know, with, with some of the things you've mentioned, they've been the, the great. Great distractions, if you like, over the years, and, and and it's refreshing. I think you know you should have many interests. But makes you a better person. Yeah. What did the current England manager make of Johnny Rotten? <laughs> well, it, it was a good. I had to see Terry, and I said to Terry, I said, he give the players a day off, so you could have popped home if you wanted, or you could have gone fishing like Gaza and Dave yeah. and one or two others." And I I used to get sounds or enemy magazine for the gig guide in those days, you know. So. I, saw, I knew the Pistols were at Finsbury Park with Iggy Pop and Stiff Little Fingers and I thought, you know what? That will that, do me. And uh, I went to see Terry. I didn't tell him who was playing. I said, do you mind if I go to a concert? It's, it's sort of, you know, you know, tomorrow afternoon. Yeah. And it
0: not, wasn't far from where you were staying no, either. No, it yeah. was a good journey. Yeah. So
1: he said, no, no problem. And then I, I've sort of dropped out. What, you know, it's Sex Pistols, by the way. So <laughs> he said, you need to take some staff members with you if you're going. So we took about four or five staff members I said to Gareth what are you doing he, he said oh, I'm just staying at the hotel I said well you fancy a gig he said yeah alright so we've gone to see the Pistols we've gone backstage met the boys beforehand. They've they've talked the gate into wearing a Pistols t-shirt <laughs> they've talked the pair of us into bear in mind we're trying to keep our head down yeah, yeah. we're in the middle of a massive tournament here um, and we're on stage now, announcing the Pistols in their reunion. Eyes, oh, it, I mean, that weekend was as good as. My uh, are the crowds seeing
0: footballs coming home before you know? Before I, I um,
1: not got. A never mind the buzz or doing, all that. Yeah, uh, to be honest, we it was just like, I've represented England, scored a penalty for England, we progressed to a semi-final, and I'm seeing the Pistols and a few other punk bands and whatever that, and it's just sensational, honestly. Yeah, if they could do weekends. Exactly, yeah.
0: And then we'll finish with the semi-final, which I went to as a punter, and I've said this to you before, and anyone who played, I hope I go to one, but I'm not sure I will ever go to a better atmosphere in a football match in my life. Because no. It was a beautiful evening. It was joyous. It was noisy. It was exuberant. And it felt mm. like, as a fan, just, this is before the game, so obviously we didn't know what was going to go on, but sort of a magic carpet ride. It was just mm. off the scale, unbelievable atmosphere. Did you sense that as a player? 100%.
1: It was, mm. it was so special. It was incredible, and without, without being in that that sort of amphitheatre and and being part of it and being all being on the pitch, whatever it may be, it was just a sensational game of football. And credit to the Germans for that. The atmosphere and the feel good factor around that stadium was incredible. The anthem of the song that was. Mm that everyone got behind. From from the offset, it was, all right, it's a cheesy song. Yeah. Go, Hang on a minute. I turn it on now, I hear it on the radio, the hairs on the back of my neck yeah. go up. Because you started
0: seeing it on the coach
1: as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, it just it grabbed us. It really, it just grabbed us and it encompassed everything that that tournament was about. It was about England as a nation putting a major tournament on that we could be proud of. I don't think we'd had a tournament in this country since '48, the Olympics mm. at Wembley, maybe. And we proved to the world we can put a, a tournament on that we can all be proud of. And more to the point, I was in my 30s at the time. So I wasn't a kid. I knew that this could be my last game. Every time I took that coach journey to Wembley, it could be my last game of football wearing my, my country's colours. Mm. And that was so powerful. It really was. It was incredible. And uh, it, listen... There has been never a better, in my opinion, never a better environment to play football than that day against Germany, Mm. without a doubt. I can see you're quite emotional talking about it, aren't you? I am. I mean, it it means a lot to me to play for my country. But once again, what you said, do I think about it on a daily basis? No, I don't. But when you mention it and I'm sat in interviews like this, it takes me back down memory lane and I know what it was like inside that stadium that day. And I know what it was like, the view
0: that I had, away to my left. So say I was a punter, I wasn't working. I was working at Wimbledon and I'd done the early shift mm. and I got on the tube and I met everybody and the ball's coming across and I can see now, as I go to sleep sometimes, Gazza sliding in. Mm. And you say in your book, Gaza was too smart for his own good because mm. he thought the keeper was going to get a little nick on the cross. And so he was almost checked his run as if to anticipate that little nick and therefore it'd be in his stride, whereas... Mm. A Shearer or a centre-forward or a foul who might have been on would have just yeah. gone for it,
1: assuming I, the keeper would have missed it and therefore scored and it would have been a golden goal. I think people like Gascoigne the are geniuses. They see pictures on football pitches that us mere immortals just don't see. You know, it's, you, you, can't, you can't learn that. They, they just see pictures. Um, and that for me was, was typical of Gazza. He, he's lunged in but held the lunge in case there was a slight nick that put the ball into him and then when there wasn't his momentum just wasn't there to get on the end of the ball but listen I, I dread to think what the celebration would have been like if he'd have hit the back of the net then he would have set sail on God knows where he'd have ended up <laughs> he'd still be <up>. going <laughs> he would be it would have been incredible but you know great great times a great day and listen it's English folklore now really
0: trying to get Shearer on the far side onto the body So it needed, well, it did need just the merest touch, and suddenly it looked as though England were into the final. I mean, you score your penalty. I mean, everyone knows it. Gareth misses his, and are you when he misses his? Are you going? You talked. You've used the word schoolmaster a few times here. Are you thinking, right, Stuart? This is your time to pass on to Gareth what you can now about what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, we. It was strange when Gareth first joined the squad. We got on really well we've we've got many things in common, if you like, you know, about the pride of the country, what it should mean, all of those type of things. Uh, I don't think either of us really enjoy the clamour of the media when we were players, you know, if, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and we got on brilliantly well. And when that moment when he missed, you know, to be able to sort of put an arm around him and say, mate, I know how you feel, was was, was good for me, to be fair. It probably helped me as much as it helped the gate, you know. But it was, I see now some of the things he puts into practice at the World Cup against Colombia, winning a penalty shootout. His experience, like my experience previous to that, used it for good. He took that on his journey and made sure that the England national team were better prepared than ever our team were. And I know full well we've done that. We we stay in contact regularly, and and I think you, if you can learn lessons from adversity, you've got every chance of, of keep growing as a person. Well, it's interesting just to finish with
0: David Bat is not involved in football, mm. so and he obviously missed in uh, against uh, Argentina and saint Etienne in '98. But the famous misses, as it were, mm. you all used it, Chris Waddle, who I know well. Brilliant career. Brilliant Mm. career in France after that. Fantastic. Won the French title three times. You miss in 1990. You don't just score in 96. You score twice in 96 because you scored in the shootout. And then your England under-21 team win a lengthy penalty shootout. Mm. And Gareth uses it to make sure that when he's manager, Mm. England finally win the shootout against Colombia. So in that sense, all three of you, the famous misses in averted commas, have used it massively. You would never have wanted it to happen to you, but you've used it
1: in a positive sense. If I didn't miss that day against Germany, my under-21 team, 19 years later, wouldn't wanna, wouldn't have won a penalty shootout. It'd have been left a chance. Instead of Joe Hart facing 350 penalties and had a 17% uh, save ratio, James Milner practising hundreds of penalties, having an 82%, 83% strike rate. And I knew what the... The defining list was I had to suffer a penalty adversity to get to that was the end goal eventually for me to pass my knowledge on. So they didn't suffer the same hurt. And Gareth's done exactly the same in his journey. Stuart, thank you very much indeed.
0: My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank that. you. Stuart Pearce's book, Never Stop Dreaming, my Euro 96 story is out now. And my thanks, Stuart Pearce, our guest on the Ramble Meets.